episode 230 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast takes off now. Fly with Garmin Avionics, then grab your mobile device and make the Garmin Pilot app your cockpit companion. Get advanced functions you'll use before, during, and after every flight, including updating your aircraft's databases and logging engine data, plan, file, fly, log with Garmin Pilot. The Pilot the Pilot podcast is brought to you by The Finer Points. You can get a free three-day trial of the Ground School app by visiting learnthefinerpoints.com. Uh, Jim Higgins, Professor of Aviation, University of North Dakota. Aviation, what is going on? And welcome back to the Pilot the Pilot podcast. My name is Justin Seams and I am your host. Today's episode is a state of the industry podcast with Jim Higgins. And for once, yes, for the first time and ever since we started the state of the industry, we are talking about good things for pilots, for aviation all around. Uh, I hope you enjoy this episode. It's a lot of fun talking with Jim and forecasting and figuring out where the industry is going to go and talking about current events. It's, it's always a blast. If you enjoy this podcast, please check out Pilot the Pilot on Instagram and Twitter, Pilot's Coffee. Order it. It's the best coffee in the world, especially the aviation industry. There's no aviation coffee that's better. If they tell you it is, they're lying. <laughs> it's the best. Check it out, pilotscoffee.com. And uh, Oshkosh is coming up. I'll be there Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, leave Thursday morning. So there should be some meetups announced soon, and uh, I'll be walking around. So uh, by all means, come say hi if you see me. But Aviation, I want to keep you much longer. So without any further ado, here's State of the Industry with Jim Higgins. Jim, what's going on, man? Welcome back to the Pilot the Pilot podcast. Justin, thanks for having me. It's always fun to be here. Always fun. Uh, it has been a long time, and I hate to say it's a good thing, but we haven't had too many bad conversations about doom and gloom and terrible stuff. So now we are finally what looks like an upward trend with a, a hint of economic peril in the future. But uh, it looks like right now things are pretty good for uh, for the industry, why for for pilots and for everyone involved in aviation. I agree. It's definitely much better than the last time we we spoke about it. Uh, some really interesting, perhaps not often seen phenomenon going on uh, in the industry with hiring and the economic conditions and whatnot, but uh, sure is a fun and fascinating time to be a pilot. Yeah. So let's get right in. Uh, the latest news that I've seen, and I think everyone's kind of seen and possibly caught a lot of people off guard was American and their subsidiaries, uh, their regional carriers, what is it, Envoy and uh, Piedmont, I believe. There might have been. And, and PSA, yeah. PSA, Those are the Envoy, Piedmont, owns, PSA. Yep. And they just kind of came out of nowhere and blew everyone's minds with the pay that they're offering. Now, it's important to say for the next two years, it's not the whole contract of these pay rates, but we can talk about that separately because I feel like there's no way you can go backwards once you start paying that, if that makes sense. So that would be interesting. But Talk about the initial shock of that around the industry and, and how that was perceived, maybe by airlines or even just uh, trainers and, and students per in general. Yeah, well, it, it, the shocking is a great word for it. You know, I have to tell you just to back up a little bit. In my previous career, I negotiated, I was a head negotiator for, um, at the time, it was American Eagle for the pilots. Uh, this is, you know, back in circa, you know, late 90s, early 2000s. And uh, I always remember trying to negotiate contracts. We had about 2,900 pilots on board. And, you know, it's just the answer was always no, right? From the company, can we do that? No, can we? And, you know, they they obviously were uh, fine to work with. But but the point being, um, you know, they're now Envoy. But the point being is, is I remember having conversations with 
the people within the union and elsewhere. And what was interesting is, is I, I had a kind of a mentor figure. Uh, it was a previous MEC chairman there. He said, Jim, I don't know when it's going to be, but someday we're going to have the leverage. I remember saying that. <laughs> and um, here we are like uh, 20, 20, uh, what, almost uh, 23 years later, we finally got the leverage in the industry. I just, I couldn't, I couldn't believe it because, you know, you have to understand for years and years and years, we've been told at the regional level, and I say we, because that's, that was, you know, at the time that's where I was from, that it wasn't that the company uh, didn't want to pay these kind of rates to regional pilots. They just couldn't afford to, but that, uh, that doesn't seem to be the case anymore. And it would be, inter- I'd be interesting to see what's changed uh, fundamentally. I think the, I think everyone knows probably the big secret here is the money's flowing down from uh, mainline to help subsidize this. Uh, but it also shows the importance of this connecting, uh, the ability to connect these systems because without the regionals, uh, a lot of these, um, uh, you know, a lot of the uh, passenger traffic would just dry up or really, really shrink. So, you know, the airlines have done some networking uh, calculations and realized that uh, it's a, um, they can go ahead and do this. Uh, you are right about the two-year piece. That's an interesting piece. I've thought about that as well, Justin. What's going to happen at the end of two years if all of a sudden the company determines they don't need this? Is everyone basically going to go back to last year's rates uh, after being on these rates for two years? That's really tough for employees to handle. Uh, so I, I don't know. That's a great unknown. And you know how pilots are. They get some money. They're not saving it. <laughs> they're spending yeah, that, it. You know right. that they're all going out buying a car, a boat, a house, whatever it might be. I mean, I'm generalizing. There might be pilots that are saving, but uh, historically pilots are not known for the best financial decisions. So it's going to be really tough for, for these pilots that possibly even turn down a flow or even, you know, they've been at PSA for 13 years and they're like, you know, maybe I should just ride this out. It pays really good. I'm a check airman. I'm making more money than a captain at American Airlines anyway. So why would I leave? So yeah. Yeah. That's a good point about the LCAs, you know, the, the check airmen and the instructors, uh, you know, what we've been hearing, you've probably been hearing the same thing, is that was really what drove this particular increase because the uh, people that get hired right away from a lot of the regional carriers are the people that become line check airmen. Now, I was a line check airman in my at my regional years and years ago, and it is a process to become a line check airman. It is uh, it takes it takes some time. The FA has to specifically fly with you, given a line check, et cetera. You know, I mean, chronologically, it can take it could take six months in some cases and in the best of conditions, maybe three months. And so as a consequence, every time um, a place like Envoy or PSA or Piedmont or any of the regionals would get a line check airman, uh, you know, to be fully qualified and certified that really upped them in the algorithms for the major airlines that were hiring, like, Oh, this person's a line check airman. Now, boom, we're going to offer them employment. And so they were picking that group off left and right. And so one of the interesting features of this, these new uh, uh, AA regional uh, contracts is you're exactly right. The pay that is going towards these Czech airmen, it is specifically designed to keep them in place and, uh, you know, disincentivize them to go anywhere else until they flow over to American. So it's uh, it's really a fascinating uh, piece. I don't know if I'd call it a gambit, but, you know, the company sure seems confident in it. And, um, I, you know, you asked a question about the effect on the others. I, I don't, I honestly don't know how, a lot of the other smaller regionals are going to be able to compete, you know, even if they incrementally put their, uh, put their wages up, it's still going to be very difficult for them. Right. The only ones that I can think of off the top of my head that maybe have any pull like that would be Sky West and Republic. I don't know what Mesa does. I mean, that's another whole interesting subject too, with them going 737s and freight. So 
who knows what they're actually doing, what their game plan is. I don't even know if they know, <laughs> but yeah. um, the only, yeah, the only ones that come, maybe even it's just Sky Westbury based on how big they are, but we don't know what they're bringing in. And going back to what you said about how the company always said, we would love to pay them this, but we just can't afford it. So outside of American, where if American wasn't there, like my question is, where has this money been all the time? Like, have you always been able to afford it? But just since there's not been the pressure, you don't need to pay it. It's like, you're still charging. I mean, I guess you're charging more for tickets now, but like, that's not where all this money is coming from. So if it isn't coming off from American, then how much money have you been sitting on for this long, for this long right. time? You know, it's like, how much money have they just been raking in by paying regional pilots almost unlevel wages for what, for 23 years that you were a negotiator? Right. Right. It, it, great question. I will say this, I, you know, I very, I, it's, uh, I, I'm not defending that from the company's point of view, but the airlines in the last, as, as we've talked about before, the last 15, 10 to 15 years have gotten really good at generating revenue and squeezing revenue out of every potential revenue opportunity. They do that with their revenue management, right? Figuring out uh, how to fill their planes with the maximum amount of um, uh, ticket fare that people are willing to pay. Uh, but they're also really good with ancillary income, which we've talked about before as well, you know, baggage fees and convenience fees and whatnot. And so they have figured out how to generate extra revenue. And so perhaps there's a little of that at play. Uh, many of them have become better with managing their fuel situation, which historically has gone back and forth with labor as the, the most significant cost. And so they might've become better at managing. So you could make a small argument perhaps that, when I was negotiating these contracts back in the um, late 90s, early 2000s, you know, the companies weren't as uh, well off in terms of generating revenue as they are today. So perhaps there is a little bit of that. But I do think it's more of what you originally talked about. They just didn't have to. It's just there were enough people that were willing. And, you know, I was one of them. My first job in the industry was $19,000 a year uh, back in the late 90s. And, uh, you know, that's really tough, man. It's tough to get an apartment, tough to get anything. You know, and so I, I hear you. It's really interesting. And um, it's going it, to, you know, you had talked about Sky West and Republic. They come to my mind as well. What's interesting about them is they have uh, multiple contracts with multiple main lines. And so I don't know what um, what's going to happen there. You know, the wholly owns were easy for American, right? Because they're wholly owned. United has kind of a, they're not wholly owns, but they're, um, they're aviate carriers that are like wholly uh, providing feed to United, perhaps. Perhaps United is willing to, to pony up there. I, you know, that'll be interesting to see what happens there. The juggernauts, like you said, in the regionals, which would be like the um, Sky West and uh, Republics, I don't know. I don't know if they're going to have access to those uh, tranches of money to subsidize their pilots. So it's going to be really interesting what's going to happen in the next six months. And I guess another one to bring up too is Endeavor with Delta. I don't think they're totally wholly owned. I, I might be mistaken, but. They have almost an exclusivity between the two of them, don't they? They they do, and 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 my guess is is you're going to see. So so prior to this envoy uh, PSA Piedmont contract, and in, in my opinion, Endeavor had uh, the best contract, the best pay rates as far as the regionals go. Uh, you know the the way they were treated, their work rules, the way they were treated, the way they handled their commuters. You know things things that are really important to pilots. They had the the best provisions in there. That obviously changed, especially in terms of pay when uh you know the uh american wholly owns uh, got the new contract i my sneaking suspicion is is you'll see something similar or a response at least uh, with endeavor i would be shocked if the negotiating committee at endeavor right now is not already in talks about this with the company yeah and you think they want to get something out as soon as possible because 
you know how uh, student pilots are, or just pilots that are ready to make the jump, or even kind of dreaming. They are very motivated by the news. You know, they're very motivated by who's paying the most right now. Uh, so all the, these student pilots and, and people at universities or people ready to make the jump, they are all for American Envoy, like all of those carriers. And you'd be dumb not to be like, you got to make the money when you can. Because uh, aviation, as you know, as we've seen, they can pull that rug really quick and the money's not going to be there. So I'm sure this has kind of transformed uh, the thought process of a lot of students. And maybe not as many people are applying to aviate or they're not as excited about aviate and they're looking to see how they can get hired by Envoy, PSA or, or any of the above. That's right. And, you know, at risk of stereotyping the incoming generation, uh, I have found since I work with them quite a bit at the university, I've found they're very good at consuming uh, information, finding information. It may not, you know, sometimes it's from questionable sources on the Internet, you know, but but nonetheless, they're very, very good at, at uh, you know, finding that. And I will tell you the questions that uh, students that are getting ready to enter the industry ask today are very different than what uh, those in my generation, the early 90s leaving college uh, would ask. And they're great questions. You know, for instance, uh, I've had students ask about contracts at the regionals. Say, well, you know, what about asking me about a duty rig? And if, for those of you that don't know, that's just a that's a concept that I didn't even know about, you know, until I hit a hit an airline. It's it's, you know, basically uh, how much you're going to get paid for your time at the airport, you know, whether you fly or not. And and these are things that uh, are just shocking that people have that much knowledge of. So so you are on point, uh, Justin. There's no doubt that this group, this incoming group keeps track of this stuff and, and they know exactly what's going on. And I do think that everyone's going to have to respond and um, we'll see how it goes. Do you think there, say in 10 years, is there enough pilots to keep every single company that's out there right now operating? Or do you think that we're going to see some, um, some, some fail or mergers or acquisitions in the future? Well, I do think consolidation will continue to happen uh, through, you know, I guess if the uh, DOJ permits it, uh, I don't know how much it's going to happen at the higher end. We'll have to see how it goes with the Spirit, JetBlue, um, uh, that whole thing that whole acquisition. <laughs> but um, uh, here's the thing about that. The, um, when, you, when you go back and look historically at uh, how this has been done, there's always been obviously been a ready supply of pilots, right? That is not the case anymore. Um, and, and I know that my friends at Alpa are saying that there's no pilot shortage per se. You know, there's a, there's a pilot pay shortage, pilot work rule shortage. You know, the truth is they're both right. There just aren't as many people available, but they're also could people can be incentivized to, to come and work. If I had to put my forecasting hat on, which I've done quite a bit in the past, and people may not want to hear this, um, but my guess is we're definitely going to go to more of a regionalization type of market and not like regional airline. But like, for instance, I live in Grand Forks, North Dakota. We do have... Um, Sky West and uh, uh, flying in on a Delta contract into here, four or five flights a day. I think that places like Grand Forks and places with smaller populations, you're going to start seeing the uh, the air service disappear over the next five to seven years. We're already seeing it in some places. And people like me will have to drive an hour, and in my case, to Fargo. And there, there have been studies done that show that people are willing to drive up to an hour to get to a connecting airport. And so I think that's probably what we're going to see in the future. Uh, we're going to see more of, um, uh, when I say regionalization, I mean regionalization of airports and where people leave from. So how do they combat, combat that though? Because that's just going to be more people coming out of that, that one airport. So do you, 
you know, are they going to fly 737s instead of 175s? Or how are they going to deal with the increased um, passengers, if that makes sense? Yes, they're going to upgauge. You're exactly right. They're going to, they're going to, uh, that's exactly right. So um, the 50 seat market is a difficult market, especially with fuel going to where it's going, obviously. Um, it worked for several years previously because fuel was historically low over the last decade or so, but obviously that's not the case. So the metrics are not as good. However, there still are some markets that will support the 50 seat, uh, you know, the 50 seat uh, uh, piece of equipment. But um, those are going to get fewer and fewer economically. And so what you're going to see is you're either going to see the regional jets increase their gauge, which we've already seen with the Embraer products and, and that, or we're going to see the main lines um, uh, increase their down gauge, which you, we've seen with like the um, uh, 220 at Delta and things like that. So you're going to see more and more of that uh, is what I, I think is going to probably happen. I know it's not what small cities like to hear. I know the Regional Airlines Association, the RAA, they're really trying to combat that. I do think there'll be some successes politically in delaying that. Maybe you'll see a, believe it or not, a more robust essential air service program. But um, <clears throat> I, I think over time, there's just no way to uh, fight against the economic realities of that. Yeah. And that, like you said, that's very unfortunate to, to think about. Because I mean, even more prominent airports, I mean, not prominent, but like, I don't know how many people live in Grand Forks, but like I'm from, I'm not from, I lived in Northeast Ohio and we would go to Akron all the time. Cleveland's really close to Akron. So who's to say that they're not just going to nix all the Akron flights and just have everyone within an hour, hour and a half drive to Cleveland? Because like you said, the data is there that shows that they will travel. They will go to the flight or yet Pittsburgh is not too far away or Columbus, you know? So it is very interesting for how that's going to play out with the game plan. It's like, or do they bring just one 737 in Akron and, and put everyone on that one flight at 2 p.m. or 2 a.m. or whatever it is? Yeah, you know, it's really going to be, you'll see some different solutions, you know, uh, based on the individual market characteristics. I mean, they can also do inline flying where, you know, maybe they start somewhere else, pick up people, land in Akron, pick up people and then go to the hub that you don't see that as much. Uh, you used to see that a lot prior to deregulation. There was a lot of those inline routes, uh, but that's another way to, to justify the, the uh, flights in and out of those places. But um I, I think uh, you're exactly right. I, you know, like in Grand Forks case, we have about 50,000 people here. Um, I just, my guess is, is you're going to see some type of regionalization down to Fargo or some other airport and people will make that drive. The people that obviously hurt and where you hear a lot of it in Congress are the uh, senators and, and Congress people that represent the rural areas. You know, it's, it's obviously an inconvenience for uh, someone like me or others that fly quite a bit. They have to drive an hour now, uh, but it actually does have some pretty severe economic devastating consequences on the local community in terms of the business, you know, because it's tough to host things uh, there. You know, for instance, if people wanted to host conferences, bring in some other economic development things, concerts, you know, things that bring in a lot of people, uh, not having air service really has an impact. And, you know, here at the university, there's a university here. We have about uh, 15,000 people at the university. You know, when air service goes away, if it goes away, my guess is you will also see a, at least a small decrease uh, in effect of it, you know, in the attendance at the local university, just because people that want to uh, travel back and forth at home, they'll go someplace where there's air service. So it has wide ranging economic uh, consequences when that happens. Uh, from a consumer point of view, it certainly is irritating and aggravating to have to drive, but that's the reality I think we're heading. I, I mean, this is just what I'm thinking is going to happen, Justin. I, I'm not saying I hope it happens. It's just I think it's the reality of it. I mean, yeah, think of uh, it's no different than, you know, driving through this small podunk town to get to the beach. And then all of a sudden they build an interstate that bypasses that town. That town doesn't thrive as much anymore if it was thriving to begin with. But that town takes a severe hit of losing out on all uh, gas money, fees, anything. Just people coming into that area and buying stuff. 
And that's no different than, than losing an airport. I'm from Charlotte. And one of the reasons Charlotte is the way it is today, population size, industry, banking, is because of the access to the major, major airport. Uh, if that was never there, then that city would never be growing what it is today. Yeah, that, that's a great analogy with the interstate uh, concept. You're absolutely right. And there's just no doubt there's been economic study after economic study of impacts of airports. And that's why a lot of communities put a lot of money into their airports. Uh, it's um, it's it just it, you're absolutely right. There's a stimulative effect and it can make the difference between boom or bust with a city. You know, there's just there's no doubt. How does corporate I mean, obviously, I fly fractional corporate that side of the industry. How does corporate react to this? Because I know right now they're thinking that they're fine. Uh, they don't need to worry about hiring a ton of people. They just need to make sure, you know, that small mom and pop, they just need to make sure they can get four pilots. And if you think about it, it shouldn't be too hard to convince four local pilots to fly there. But as the money keeps increasing, as the quality of life keeps getting better, as the equipment gets better, as all these things keep getting better, even in my mind, and I'm not saying I'd ever make a move because I'm really happy where I am, but like, you just keep thinking about it, you know, just like you think about the money you can make, you think about the routes you could fly, you think about the planes you could fly. And it just starts like sitting in the back of your mind. It gets creaking forward, 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 forward. And then eventually you're like, all right, I'm going to try it. Uh, especially with where we're going with salaries. What does corporate need to do? Or what do you think a corporate world looks like in the next 10, 15 years? Yeah. You know, you're, you're, you're spot on there as well. You know, a lot of, I think what's going to advance corporate flying is the ability to get the cost structure down. You know, when you look at like the Honda jet and some of the other, um, you know, even the uh, Cirrus jet and, and, you know, and originally, I guess the predecessor, the very light jet was the um, Eclipse, right? Yeah. So, so of course, not all of those were commercially successful, but as you see that price point come down, uh, you're going to start seeing the ability for more people to entertain that. I, I don't know if this is a hundred percent accurate, but I know that uh, if you look at some of the larger fractional folks, they will they their, their entry level uh, fractional uh, customer usually has a net worth of around twenty million. I think is about the minimum before you can start justifying that that type of thing. And it could also be business, you know, revenue. But whatever the case may be, that's that's the entry level. As that comes down because the cost of equipment comes down, you know, if you can ever bring that down to like a couple million uh, net worth or maybe 5 million net worth, you can certainly get to the mid-level business folks, which would cause a big proliferation, in my opinion, you know, in the, in the regional, I'm sorry, in the fractional industry. And no doubt the smart people at the different fractionals that calculate this, they're well aware of that and they're trying very hard. But you correctly point out the other counter lever to that is the fact that there's going to be pressure on pilots that fly uh, for you know, for a lot of these carriers, not just fractionals, but like you said, any, any corporate department, there's going to be pressure on them to think that we're seeing that at the university, just amongst our professors and our longtime flight instructors, you know, they could go out in the industry tomorrow and, you know, double at a regional, double their pay. And if they make it to a major, you know, the sky's the limit there. So, so there is already pressure on the industry in a lot of different spots, corporate being one of them. So it's going to be it's going to be interesting. My hunch is is there'll always be enough people that enjoy um, the lifestyle. Now I flew corporate for a while. I was at a much lower level than you. It's way back. The thing I didn't enjoy about it at the time. I'm going to use the term. You probably don't even know what it is, Justin. Have you ever heard of a beeper? Yeah. What's that? I mentioned that to my my kids the other day. They're like, "What's that?" So the pager. They still didn't know. But that that was my problem. I worked for too small of a corporate, corporate, uh, environment where I was constantly responding to that, you know, and, you know, an hour later being in flight 
And, um, and, and so if I was in a more organized uh, department, it probably would have been better. But, but the point is, is uh, some people really like that lifestyle and, you know, there's probably a premium that you don't have to pay to keep people in that lifestyle. And, you know, that for me, that's what I couldn't stand being away from, from home so much when I was in the airlines, uh, especially once we started having kids. So you're always going to find people, uh, I think that can fit in the situation, but it's going to be interesting to see to your point, if the cost of equipment can come down enough to offset what you're going to have to do. And when you increase uh, pay and work rules for the corporate folks, just, just my uh, nickel opinion at this point. Yeah. And I completely agree. And the, the only thing I see is just reacting faster than don't let the, you can't let the mindset creep in anymore than it does. Cause I don't want to say it's like a cancer if you're not at an airline, but it's always there. It's always in the back of your mind. As soon as you have to clean that, I mean, you don't have to clean too many toilets, but as soon as you have to do something you don't want to do or that, that ASAP trip really messed up your overnight plans, you know, it just keeps creaking up a little bit more and a little bit more. And every pay raise, you're just like, what am I doing? And it comes to a point where it's like, there's just too much money on the table for my family. It's like, yeah, I might not like it as much, but like, I'd be so dumb to turn down that kind of money in, in retirement that you can get? Well, the, re- the retirement programs alone are pretty substantial. I, I know that firsthand because my, my wife had moved from a regional to a, to a major airline uh, just recently. And just looking at the retirement programs, I you know, just to put it in perspective, uh, most airline pilots at a major airline now uh, bump up against the IRS limits for what you can put away. I've, I've, I've never had that problem in a previous job, you know, your four, you know, the 401ks and the, you know, the pension programs and whatnot. And, and if you look at some of the newer contracts that are being proposed, the new TAs, there's even uh, more of a contribution to retirements. So they're starting to find ways to, to do different types of programs that allow pilots to save more. So, so yeah, no doubt the, the retirement alone uh, is quite a bit, but you know, um, as you know, and as we've talked about, and as we've seen through the pandemic, you know, there's no industry that, uh, has a monopoly on the good times and the airlines certainly do not have a monopoly on the good times. It wasn't, but just, as you know, the beginning of the pandemic a couple years ago, where there was some unbelievably uh, horrible economic conditions, obviously. And, you know, we were looking at around the industry, seeing lots of people lose their jobs. So that's that's kind of the downside, in my opinion. And I know that can happen in the corporate world as well. If profits go down, revenue goes down. But that is kind of the downside. It seems sometimes like a wild ride uh, in the airline industry. You know, I look back at my father, who was also a retired airline pilot. He was either on strike or furloughed uh, a third of his career. You know, he worked for uh, Continental Airlines. And, um, you know, before he he retired, he actually went over to UPS. Um uh, I can explain that story sometime too, <laughs> but it was a better deal for him. But uh, yeah, to make a to make a long story short, it was a um, uh, it's it's not for the faint of heart. No, definitely not. And I would totally agree. I mean, they hire until they fire, or hire until they furlough, right? Like that's just how the airlines work and how most places work. And one thing that I, I was talking to this is. I mean, I was talking to a buddy who said he talked to an economist. So it's not a firsthand story, but I do agree with what he said. He said the economist said there is no other industry where there is pretty, I mean, there might be a couple more, but there's really no other industry where he sees no cap on how much someone can make as pilots right now. Let's take a break from today's episode to hear from our sponsor, RAA. As pilots, we're great at preparing for every possible eventuality in the skies, but have you thought about whether you're saving enough for the financial future you want after you hang up your wings? It's an important question to ask and easy to answer with the free retirement paycheck calculator from our friends at RAA. Based on a few simple factors, it shows how much income you could expect to receive each month in retirement at your current savings pace. And if you're falling short of your goals, steps you can take to course correct your savings strategy. 
It's like an instant snapshot of your financial outlook that every pilot can benefit from, whether you're just entering the industry or nearing your final flight. Again, it's called the Retirement Paycheck Calculator. It just takes a few minutes and it's free. I run my numbers on a regular basis and you'll love the financial clarity and confidence you'll get from it. So go there now at raa.com slash pilot to pilot. That's pilot to pilot. With high resolution coast to coast composite radar and cloud to cloud, cloud to ground lightning updated every 2.5 minutes along with always available weather products like METARs, ECHOTOPS, and storm tracks. Sirius XM lets you fly confidently knowing that your weather information is available at 500 feet or at your destination 500 miles ahead. Check out aopa.org forward slash Sirius XM to get a two month free trial to try these products out for yourself. And now back to today's episode. Based on what the future looks like, he's like, he does not know where the cap was for that. Like who knows what in in 20 years, it could be some astronomical number. And to what I came back with is that we are, pilots are in a race of getting paid so much money to where it's cheaper for an airline to operate with a single pilot. Once we hit that, that kind of um, that line where if we cross it, they, it's cheaper for them to operate as a single airline or a single pilot operation. They're going to go there in a heartbeat and they just save so much money. So I feel like we are right now in a race to see how much we can make, which is great. But there's going to be a time where they're like, oh, wait, this is safe now and pu- public's okay with this. We're just going to swap to, to one pilot. Yeah, it's really, it's really interesting you say that. You know, um, I don't know if we've talked about this before, but there was a little bit of drama around the single pilot issue. Well, there's been a lot of drama, but a little bit extra drama a couple of years ago when Boeing announced the 797 that's, I think, due out in um, uh, towards the end of the 2020s, you know, 27, 28, somewhere in that. It's, it's their new um, midsize, I think they're calling it. And um, the idea behind this aircraft, they, they, when it was introduced, I believe it was the Paris Air Show a couple of years ago, but it might have been Dubai or one of the other larger air shows. But uh, it was a company with a press release that talked about the single pilot option. And, uh, you know, to me, it was like earth shaking. I was like, are you kidding me? They're actually coming out and saying that? Well, almost immediately, there was a backlash against that, that concept, as you know, because uh, I know that ALPA and the other pilots unions are, are really strongly opposed to that. And, um, and I don't, you know, I have my own safety concerns about that too. Of course, I'm coming at it from a pilot perspective, but all that being said, that, that press release was changed and Boeing put out a, I guess you'd call it a correction saying, uh, it's just something that's been talked about. It's not actually going to be an option, but the cynic in me thinks, no, that that's definitely something that's been more than talked about. And that's definitely going to be an option. It may not be an option in the United States for the foreseeable future, but I could certainly see other, um, other countries, maybe uh, not that they're less risk averse, but maybe they're, they have a little more, I don't know what word you'd use, but a, a little more uh, possibilities to uh, have that. And uh, I, you know, I tell my, my pilot friends this all the time. If you just look back to the history of aviation, you know, when you look back into the fifties and the forties, you know, you had a big crew, you know, you had the captain FO navigator, radio operator. You often had a flight engineer that was there to manage the systems. You know, we had big crews. And then as we all know, technology came about and eventually we went to a three person crew and, you know, not that long ago, I uh, went to almost all two person crews. And, uh, if you look at the evolutionary momentum of that and the way technology is getting to where it's at, uh, this is controversial and I know people aren't going to want to hear this, but I do think it's just a matter of time before you see those single pilot operators. I think it'll be a while in the U S I mean, I don't know. I think it's more of a sociological issue 
uh, generational issue. But um, again, just my guess from a sociological point of view, the younger generation is getting very used to automation and things that are automated. I do think it's just a matter of um, a matter of time before you start seeing uh, acceptance of this, uh, both regulatorily speaking and also uh, sociologically speaking. Oh, uh, 100%. But just my guess. Yeah, yeah. no, I hundred percent agree. And and Boeing, they they totally they're totally talking about that. Like this is you know airlines want to make money, uh, aviation industry. All they want to do is make money. So if they can find a way to cut out, I think it's. I I wrote something. I, I did some research on it. I think it was like they could save like fifteen billion dollars by going to single pilot. Not one airline, the aviation industry as a whole, uh, by getting rid of just the, that one extra salary and training and time off and all of that, they could save so much money. So it's definitely in the works, and it's definitely something that they're are not they're not going to give up until it happens. <laughs> it's just it it just they're going to win eventually, and, and eventually they'll figure out a way to sway public opinion. Uh, public will find it for a couple of times. It might trickle down through freight, the safety we'll see. Uh, and then eventually down to, I think private might be uh, private. Now can do single pilot, but they can't land, you know, cat three landings. You can't do that at every airport. So there's a lot more to me, trickiness track trickling down to like full on private aviation on the fractionals. Cause going to Aspen, uh, Heber city, you know, all these crazy airports that have all these rules, Truckee, for instance, you can't just, um, just line it up and land, you know, you got to figure it out, but I'm sure they'll oh, figure yeah. out a way to do it too. Well, you know, I, I, I think back to when I was flying the line, I remember, you know, auto land had just kind of come out recently. And I remember thinking to myself, oh yeah, I'd really like to see how this thing does in a stiff crosswind. I bet there's no way it'll do well or a gusty stiff crosswind. Well, unfortunately I was wrong about that. It does quite well in a gusty stiff crosswind, you know, and, and, uh, you know, the technology is getting there. Um, I, I do think the canaries in the coal mine, if you want to look at it from a purely pilot perspective, is exactly what you said. You'll see freight first. I think where you'll see it is you're going to see the eroding of the augmented flight crews, the international relief operations where they have to augment the crew for really long flights. The things that are being, that are being talked about, um, you know, in the background, uh, and I, I happen to know this for a fact, one of the concepts is um, – uh, you know, normally you have like three or four people if you're going to have more than an eight hour or nine hour flight, depending on the rules. And then one crew comes up and relieves the other, right? Or or maybe one position comes up and relieves the other so that everyone can get to sleep. But the um, issue is going to be if you just went with two people and then one person left halfway through the flight or one third of the way into the flight, got their rest period, can a remotely uh, can a remotely monitoring pilot with the technology that's out there through telemetry and whatnot can that person at least uh, come in and basically virtually sit with the pilot remaining? And then um, if there's an emergency, they just have to stabilize till the uh, pilot and rest can come up. Of course, there's a you know re- physiological recovery period there. I mean, there's a lot of things that have to be worked out. But these types of things are being talked about. And you're going to see things like that first, I believe, at least in the U.S., before you see wholesale adoption of single pilots. Um, with corporate, it's, it's also interesting as you know, way more about it than I do. But the one thing I've been very interested in is the advent of the, well, I collectively, some people call it the easy button, but it's the emergency button that a passenger can hit on some of the smaller uh, GA aircraft, like the Cirrus is now feature it, uh, where if uh, it's a Garmin product, there might be others out there, but if a pilot becomes incapacitated, they press the button and it, you know, it broadcasts in the blind and lands, you know, and 
So you're going to start seeing things like that. I think that can also possibly put pressure on the two pilot system, but um, it, it, I, you know, it's going to be fun to get the popcorn out and watch. I hope uh, people can plan accordingly. I do think in the U S the pilot uh, profession is going to be viable for at least the next decade and a half in terms of, um, you know, at least the next decade in terms of being able to find a job. But you know, after that, all bets are off. Yeah. I mean, I probably good 10, 20, 30 years, of a decent job left and might deteriorate as uh, when the decade comes around or next 10 years, but uh, I still think the pay will be there. And then when you go single pilot, are you, do you just pay that other person a little bit more now? So who knows even what that means for, for people that are in the industry. So that's a, a whole nother thing to pay attention to, like we talked about and, and see what goes on, but it's important for everyone to know that that's an option. You know, you got to keep it all in the back of your mind. It's like, uh, just everything that could play out when you're considering this career. Right. Absolutely. The, the single pilot, uh, option that we're talking about obviously comes with uh, tremendous safety implications, you know, and I know, you know, that I, I know most of your listeners are going to know that, but uh, you know, right now the best safety device we have available, given all the technology, all the complexities of our systems, all the errors that can be made by ourselves when we fly or by ATC or by, by mechanics or, or whoever, the best safety device we have right now are two trained pilots uh, that can, uh, you know, work with each other to, to resolve issues. It's the safest system out there when you think about what we do. And, you know, the, the fact that, um, I mean, there's been one death in the aviation industry since the 121 industry since uh, 2008, right? And that was a Southwest, you know, um, engine, catastrophic engine thing. Freak, freak accident, you know, I mean, freak accident. So, so right now it's really, really safe. So when we start saying, well, we're going to start making changes, well, okay, but it's really safe right now. And, Boy, you certainly don't want somebody to pay with their life to to learn a lesson that you know to going forward. Right. Well, I mean, I hate to say this, but we've seen that when when the industry believes that they're really safe is when they try to make more money and they start cutting other things as well. I mean, you've seen that with Boeing with what they did and, and cutting safety, uh, and everyone's like that. You know, it's a it's a cycle of oh something happened. We have to be as safe as possible, and this is going to be free now because every airplane needs it. Ten years, like oh. Everyone flies these planes perfectly fine. Um, you have to pay a fee to use this now. We're not going to pay that fee. And then, you know, just this, a vicious cycle of um, trying to find the correct way to correlate safety and profits. And it's it's like a seesaw or a teeter-totter. It goes one side, goes up, one side goes, you know, up and down. And you just hope that you can alleviate and, and not lose life. That's right. That's right. And the risks are high, right? You're exactly right. I will say one thing that might give pilots hope on this aspect of it. Um, you're, you may be aware uh, in Europe and in Asia and in Australia and a lot of other places around the world outside the U.S., there was a concept that emerged in the um, 2000s called the multi-crew pilots license or the MPL. And this was a concept that was very different. And so the, the idea is you train someone from day one to fly an Airbus, I mean, before they've even flown an aircraft ever, let's say, for as an example, you pro, you train them from day one to fly in the right seat of an Airbus A320. And they get, you know, a, uh, you know, a year or so of training and just how to operate that. And then they basically become the pilot, mon the permanent pilot monitoring as the captains come through. And the Europeans have used this. Um, so have uh, places in Asia as well. It's not allowed in the U.S. And one of the reasons I believe it's not allowed in the U.S., is because the efforts of the labor unions here talking about the safety, you know, my, my personal opinion on it is, is um, maybe you can train somebody to professionally sit in the right seat uh, forever, but eventually you're going to need people to upgrade and go to that left seat. And if someone doesn't have that experience, 
I, it's, it's beyond me and what I've studied and what I've seen in the industry, how you ever replace that, you know, and there is as, as hard as our system can be in the U S as pilots have to hit their head against, you know, different things, trying to find different jobs, you know, flight instructing, almost getting killed you know, on a weekly basis, you know, all the way up to, you know, I did a night freight job, uh, you know, for a night cargo job for a while. That was really tough work, you know, whatever it takes. There's a lot to be said for our system because by the time you make it into a professional flight deck in the corporate world or professional flight deck in the 121 world, you know, you've earned it for the most part. Yes, we see people make mistakes every now and then, but by and large, there's a reason why our system's safe, in my opinion. And a big part of that is, is the way we kind of organically grow our pilots through a system of hard knocks and experiential learning compared to what we see in the other parts of the world. So the fact that the U.S. has resisted the MPL does uh, give me some hope at least as an analogous experience to this whole concept of single pilot flying that perhaps, you know, we can resist until everything is for sure as safe or safer than yeah. what it was before. I mean, that's a great point because yeah. think about how do you upgrade a single pilot? How do you go from the monitor of the drone, whatever you are sitting in Las Vegas monitoring like six planes to actually flying in the airplane? It's like, is it, do they treat yeah, it like exactly. the F-35 training system where you're going to very nice simulator and then they just let you go with 200 people in the back? You know, it's like, uh, what, what? I, yeah, I don't know. That's another uh, interesting thing that they'd have to come up with. But like I said, profits determine everything. If they can find a way to make more money, they'll do it. So we'll, we'll have to see how it plays out. We'll have to see. The one other thing I'll talk about just on that point, just to close it out, is from a sociological point of view, many people, myself included, think that sociologically where people will start accepting the auto uh, or the single pilot crews or, or uh, more automation there is when we start seeing the auto driven cars come more of a reality, which probably will happen over the next decade. Uh, you know, and certainly into the uh, 2030s, I think you're going to see most of the cars will have that capability. Once that happens sociologically, uh, people may become more comfortable with the idea of less human environment. But we'll, again, we'll see. I'm not a sociologist. And I'm sure having cheaper airfare to start out with might also help. You know how people are. If I can save 50 bucks or $100 on this leg, oh, it's only a, a one one pilot. All right, I'll see what it does. What's the worst that yeah, happen? You know, right, like right. people said they weren't going to fly the Max and they're still flying the Max. So oh, yeah. we've seen that that's not always necessarily true. That's not true. The uh, the economic term for it is, um, you know, airline passengers are very um, inelastic when it comes to, as long as the price is right, they will they will take the flight. Uh, and, and so that's kind of an interesting concept, you know, in my regional days, you know, whenever we were inevitably late or there was some kind of maintenance problem that delayed everybody, you know, as the passengers would get off the plane, if I had a nickel for every time somebody said, I'm never going to fly on your airline again, you know, I'd have a lot of nickels. But the other thing is, is, um, I would see them, you know, I flew in a small enough region that I would see the same people. I mean, I get it. It can be very frustrating from a consumer point of view, but the truth is, is what you say is exactly right. If the price is right, people will absolutely make that decision 99 out of a hundred times. Yeah. And, and the problem is now there's no good place to go. Like no one can, no airline can really change the issues that are happening right now until they can, <laughs> they can't keep up with demand. They, uh, they can't keep up with the, the weather demand, everything that's going on right now. It's like, yeah, cool. I'm not going to fly United anymore, but I'll go to Delta. It's like, oh, wait, Delta's canceled more flights than anyone. All right, I'll try American. Wait, American, you know, it's just like there's no good option right now, to be honest with you, to keep up with the schedules and demands. Uh, so, yeah, <laughs> there's not really going to be much of a choice. 
Nope. There's no good options. And one thing I do remind, like you, I get calls from my family and friends whenever there's, they're involved in some kind of an airline drama where their flight's been canceled or something's late and they're going to miss something. And, you know, I always sympathize with them, but I always say, you know, one of the reasons why things are late, yes, there certainly are some inefficiencies and some, there probably could be some better logistics planning, but the vast majority of delays are because, you know, we need to keep the system safe. If something's not working on a plane, then, you know, they're not going to take off unless it's, it's not necessary. You know, if, no one's going to fly an aircraft that, uh, you know, has a, a problem with it or, or fly through a thunderstorm or whatever. So I always remind people, keep in mind the reason why things often get delayed or often get canceled is just because the system's trying to keep everyone safe. It's going to always value that first. And um, but yes, there certainly are some logistics and efficiency things that can always be improved upon as well. And and I'm sure you get those same calls from your friends and family, Justin. Yeah, all the time. <laughs> Why is this late? I don't know. I fly private jets. My bad. <laughs> oh, there you go. Yeah, you're yeah. perfect. That's a great <laughs> that's answer. That's what I say. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, let's touch on kind of the the big thing that's going on in the industry outside of the pay and what is going on with Spirit. Um, I, number one, why does ever not everyone, why do two airlines want Spirit so bad? And then after you answer that, I had an interesting kind of, not epiphany, but someone brought up a really good point between why Spirit really wants Frontier. I want to see if uh, if you... I've heard that as well. Well, I, you know, uh, I'm uh, uh, unfortunately not as probably up to speed on this as you are. I, I, I know that, um, you know, obviously I have a lot of friends at all these airlines, including some management folks. Um, the most surprising thing to me has been the aggressiveness of uh, both JetBlue and, and Frontier. I mean, I on my Facebook feed, for instance, I'm seeing a lot of ads from uh, JetBlue probably because of my surfing history and things like that, I get targeted for that, but it's trying to convince me that it's a good deal that they are able to merge and, you know, acquire spirit. And I'm just, I've been, I've never seen in this day and age of social media and, you know, blitz campaigns, uh, ad campaigns. I've never seen that. Of course, I'm the wrong audience for that because I have no say in it at all, I guess, except for now what I'm talking to you about. But, um, it's, uh, it, it's, it's been fascinating, you know, spirit is a juggernaut, you know, there's a, obviously, um, and I, no offense to my friends at spirit, they do have a little bit of a reputation sometimes as, um, you know, they have on not the company, but you know, they'll bring passengers that maybe are a little more unruly sometimes than, than others. And, and so, but you know, the truth is, is they really, really, uh, fill that niche and they've been successful by any metric, uh, wildly successful by any metric. And so I, I'm not surprised at all to see that they're going to be an acquisition target for the likes of um, Frontier and, and, and uh, JetBlue. I mean, it, you know, it, I, I look back to the Virgin acquisition and um, there were a lot of companies that were going after Virgin at the time. And, you know, uh, but that's one of the fastest ways to solve your pilot issues and your growth issues. And it's a time honored tradition in the airlines is growth through acquisition and you're able to access markets, pilots, aircraft, et cetera. So I'm not surprised to see it. Yeah. I mean, I don't think anyone's surprised on that end. It just might be, uh, is JetBlue one just so hurt that they didn't get Virgin that they're like, all right, we, we really want to be seen as a major airline and, and continue to compete with say the big four. And so now they're like spirits the next option. Um, or two, is it just strictly pilots and planes? Uh, we need pilots, we need planes. Let's get whatever we can as fast as we can. Yeah. I do think that, um, that would, there was a lot there was a lot to that uh, with uh, with Virgin because a lot of lessons were learned, and that's why you're seeing a lot of the aggressiveness 
you know, of uh, what's going on. So yeah, that, that's exactly, that's exactly right. They were, they wanted to see it as their big West coast expansion and it didn't happen. And um, now it's the same exact thing you're seeing play over. They, you know, it's, it's one thing to, to get beat on a game once, but to lose a second time when you've already had the lessons, I do think there's a lot of that, but make, make no, make no mistake. It's an econ, it's economically driven. And um, from a complimentary, mathematically complimentary point of view, the route structures do align and it makes perfect sense. Yeah, I mean, JetBlue, Spirit would be a huge acquisition for JetBlue to help connect the dots. So they're on both coasts, but they're not really prominent in, uh, in the middle. And Spirit, you know, dominates Detroit. It doesn't dominate Detroit, but it's really big in Detroit. It has some, some big presences in other airports that they don't have access to. So it would, uh, it would be huge for their route structure uh, and obviously need pilots. So why not? Right. Yep. And, and I, I really think that that actually goes into the calculations as well as getting uh, pilots and mechanics, by the way, which are also uh, short as well. So, so yeah, you know, the, the, and the group that uh, ends up getting furloughed during these types of things are, are, uh, are terminated are, you know, the middle management folks. Those are the people that take it the hardest during these mergers, but it does allow for, you know, a, um, a synergistic uh, increase in efficiencies because uh, you're able to get rid of that, some of that middle layer there that, uh, you know, you get more, more revenue in production right away. So yeah, it definitely matches up nicely with the route structure. And I was told, like I said, again, this isn't like firsthand information because I don't know how true this is, but the CE, current CEO of Spirit used to work at Frontier and he is still really buddy, buddy with everyone at Frontier. So it sounds like, and what I heard was it was a little bit, it's like a little bit of a buddy, buddy deal where they're going to try as hard as they can unless JetBlue just goes astronomical with uh, their valuation of Spirit to, to merge with Frontier. You know, I used to, I used to be dismissive of, um, you know, stories like these people are, uh, you know, they're, they know each other well, they, they uh, would do special deals for each other, but I've learned probably like you have over the years, Justin, that personalities do play a role in these things. It should be just a purely big business decision, right? But everyone's going to use whatever leverage they can to make these these uh, types of uh, mergers and acquisitions happen. So I'm not at all surprised that there's going to be uh, you know people in the know and and people that uh, are pressuring others to say, hey, you know, this is a better deal for you. You know, at the end of the day. The board of directors for Spirit, they're going to be the ones that determine it. And their sole um, metric is that they're, they're responsible. They have a fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders. So they have to do what's in the best interest of the shareholders. So that in, that includes price that they're getting for their shares, but also you know what's going to be better for long-term uh, aspects for, for their shareholders. So they're going to be the ones that ultimately decide it's an enviable position to be in because, you know, they're going to be wined and dined by uh, both, um, both groups uh, as, as they make a run for it. Uh, people forget too about frontier. You can't really sleep on frontier either, because if you look at the, their, their parent company Indigo, you know, they're looking at uh, doubling just without this acquisition doubling uh, over the next four years, just with their Airbus A320 orders alone. So it's really, I mean, this would, this would definitely give them a head start on that plan. How does JetBlue recover if they get turned, if they miss out on the second acquisition? You know, it's like, uh, it's going to be pretty, not, not necessarily embarrassing, but it's like JetBlue just can't buy an airline to save their life. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, um, I don't, I don't know that it certainly wouldn't be existential to them or anything like that. I mean, JetBlue's, you know, with their ETOPS now, they're going into Europe and different places. They're finding out ways to to grow, but um, I do think. It looks like they're obviously very interested in consolidation, and you know they've wanted to be the acquiring party 
and certainly in a position the last couple of times to be the acquiring party. But you could also see it go the other way where um, somebody acquires them, you know, because they're a well-run airline. Uh, they're successful. They generate a lot of revenue. Um, I don't know that uh, the way they do things would merge nicely with a large legacy just, just because they're kind of different missions, but you never know. And then also um, after Frontier acquires, uh, if, if they acquire Spirit and, you know, after Alaska acquiring um, Virgin, there's not a whole lot left. You know, I, I don't see JetBlue going after uh, Allegiant, for instance. I just don't, that seems like an odd with their outbased, uh, outbasing, or I'm sorry, um, uh, outstation-based uh, ideas. I just don't think it would work. But it's it's interesting because there's not a lot left for them to acquire. So they either have to become a target themselves or figure out another way to grow. Well, they do have that buddy-buddy deal with, I don't know the better way to explain it, with American where uh, the, the code sharing that they just came up with and they're all the pilots voted it down and the company's like, we're going to do it anyway. So it <laughs> seems yeah. like they're, they're playing well, all their cards and keeping everything open to see what's best for the airline. Yeah. So, so if you talk to pilots at JetBlue and you talk to pilots at American, it's in their mind, common knowledge that, you know, a merger is imminent at any given, depending on the month, you know, between Americans, uh, you know, acquiring JetBlue and whatnot. And, and I've heard that for, for a while now, I'm sure you have too. And my guess is there's often, you know, the old saying where there's uh where there's a uh, smoke, there's fire, you know, and then we saw that, that, code sharing agreement come out, which was really interesting, like you said. So my guess is, is there have been overtures made both behind the scenes and obviously publicly. And um, I'm just trying to think operationally, you know, the last merger, big merger American had was with TWA. And by all accounts, it did not go well. The sole purpose of that acquisition, and again, this was back in the early 2000s, uh, the sole purpose was to get another Midwestern hub in St. Louis so you could bypass Dallas and Chicago if there was weather, you know, as you routed passengers. And um, it just didn't work because the cultures were very different. The logistics were handled very different. The IT infrastructure is very different. And so I'm just wondering if that same thing exists with JetBlue. One way to close that gap, though, is to do these types of code sharing agreements because what happens is, is then in order to make systems work with each other, work has to be done. And so if there is an eventual consolidation, merger, acquisition, whatever the case may be, perhaps it'll be less painful uh, because there have been very successful mergers in the industry and very unsuccessful mergers in the industry. And the American TWA one is more towards the unsuccessful. So so that hopefully they've learned from that. And there have been a couple more recent ones with um, American. Uh, American and U.S. Airways, uh, 2012, oh, good and U.S. Yeah, Airways I, and America West, which also followed the same as TWA and American because my dad was at U.S. Airways and I cannot tell you how much he loathes any America West pilot. And I'm, I'm sorry if you're an America West pilot, but uh, from right. what I can gather, American or no, you, the U.S. Airway guys at American and Girls absolutely cannot stand America West and vice versa. So yeah, I'm, I'm sorry I didn't mention that merger. That was like the big merger right up there with the Delta Northwest merger. Yeah. So yeah, good, good point. Yeah, my, just for as an aside, uh, my dad was a striker at Continental and uh, was asked not to come back after the strike. So he has a lot of tough feelings against the people that were not strikers at Continental. Let me just put it that way. So I grew up in that environment as well, Justin. Um, yeah, you know, and so, um, you know, economically, though, that, mer you know, I don't know, the pilots probably feel pretty strong about it. Economically, that that three-way merge uh, seemed to work out economically for American, although maybe now they're starting to feel the pains of it all these years later. I, I, I don't know. But um, certainly from an employee point of view, there was a lot to be desired. And there were definitely people that um, got shafted. There's no other way yeah. to put it. Yeah. I mean, no one, it's not fair for everyone when a merger happens. Someone's going to get the, someone's going to go on the junior side of the seniority list when they had a bunch of seniority. So it's just, it's going to screw someone over. Just You just hope and pray it's not you. But yeah, I, that's, that's I don't, true. 
I don't know how the DOJ would approve anything for American in the current time right now, based on how big they are. Uh, I think it might take a, a, a an allegiant, not an allegiant, um, a frontier spirit merger. Uh, maybe an Alaska gets bought up by someone before they agree to let American get any bigger, just based on the pure size that American is. Because even they kind of market themselves as we're too big to fail. We're, we're never, I remember Doug Parker said he's never not going to make money. <laughs> and then yeah. uh, here comes the um, the pandemic, but they, they have been quoted themselves saying that they're too big to fail. So I don't know what that looks like currently. And I think American knows that it's like, they're in no position right now. And that could be the reason why they have the coach here of JetBlue. Maybe they're, they're waiting to see how the cards fall and kind of JetBlue and American will have this nice little merger together uh, once the ability comes where they would get approved. Uh, I think there's a lot of validity to what you're saying. I, no doubt that's why they're doing the co-chairs to put the toe in the waters uh, on something like this. In my opinion, that that's a big piece towards it. Um, and you're exactly right. You know, whenever there's a, a merger of that magnitude, uh, people forget sometimes. But you have to, if you're American and if you're the other carrier that's consolidating, you have to take a big chunk of your management, perhaps up to a third of your management, and they have to work on these integration teams or merger teams, or, or they have different names for them depending on the merger. But their group then is to work with their counterparts at each each airline and work out how things are going to be integrated. And it can take months and months and months. And the problem is, is when you take a third of your management, as much as I like to make management jokes, because I'm a former union guy, the truth is it actually causes lots of operational issues uh, when they're not there. And so it's a big price to pay. And then sometimes you find out, like you said, the DOJ is not going to let it happen um, either. You know, my guess is, is what happens is these, these companies are all politically connected. They have, you know, strong lobbying firms. They're going to test those waters long before um, they put a lot of resources into a merger. Uh, but I do think this, uh, what you're seeing with JetBlue and what we've seen with others, where they kind of uh, do an enhanced co-chair agreement. I forget the term they used for it, but an enhanced co-chair agreement, that, that's where you're going to end up um, uh, seeing, you know, the first step in, in a step towards an ultimate consolidation. And worst case scenario, they just keep the co-chair agreement and get the revenue. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's like American will be fine. <laughs> like they right. said, they're too big to fail. It's just JetBlue out to pick up the pieces when they can't merge with anyone. <laughs> and then right. I, I'm not picking right. on them. It's just the track record that could be shown. I mean, who knows? They might be like, hey, we'll give you $20 billion. Please take our offer. And they'll be like, okay, we have to say yes. <laughs> so we'll right. see. Right. Um, right. Yeah. I guess the last question I have before I let you go is what a time to start an airline. Breeze Airways, like what does a future look like getting into the industry right now? Is there, how could they even be competitive? I've seen, I don't know if you saw this, they have reached out to Australian pilots and they're trying to figure out a way to get Australian pilots to be their pilots. I just, it seems very interesting right now to, to start an airline and to have the opportunity to have a successful airline. Yeah. You know, you, you asked me about this before, of course, this is before we saw they were having their, their issues, like everybody with recruiting pilots. And, you know, my answer back then was uh, the person that founded Needleman, who founded JetBlue, and before that, Morris Air, uh, that Southwest eventually acquired. I mean, everyone's always counted them out. And so I, I I would not count that airline out. However, I do think it's fair to say at this point that they thought, like, they made the classic mistake that a lot of um, airlines make or have made in the past that, you know, pilots are always going to be easy to find, right? They just assumed that that wasn't going to be an issue. And of course, now that they're out there, they're seeing that, ooh, boy, we're having a tough time. You know, their pay rates, you know, they're just not where you're going to see in the industry. And, you know, my guess is, is you look at what happens with um, the American Holy Owns with their new contract, of course, uh, or sorry, their letter of agreement for two years. 
that's going to put a lot of pressure there as well, right? So, so we'll see the um, Australian and uh, some of the other endeavors that you're seeing is just a byproduct of getting creative, you know. But um, Australia and those parts of the world as well, Asia, you know, they're also in their own uh, shortage. You know, they're having their own uh, logistical issues finding pilots as well. There's there's no um, cadre of pilots around the world that is just free waiting for someone to call them and say, hey, come work for us. I mean, it's yeah, it's no. difficult. So so I, I think they're going to find it. Uh, they're, if they don't compete on pay and work rules, they're going to find it kind of difficult, I think, going forward. I agree. Definitely agree. It's another one to keep an eye on. And I actually lied to you. I have one more question. Uh, but we don't, we don't have to harp on it too long. We can, we can bring it back up next time. Um, have you heard anything about 67, 70 and actual valid, vid, wow, can't talk validity to it, it coming? Or is it something that's a pipe dream and just seen, see no way for it to actually happen? Well, you know, I, I worked in the industry when it was 60, right? And I remember, I remember at the time, um, people saying, oh, I'll never go to 65. And, and the union's official, the labor union's official stance on this is pretty clear. It's always been clear. Uh, their concept is, is, um, you know, the pies are only so big to negotiate agreements with companies. And if all of a sudden you extend, you know, a few years later at the highest pay for the highest paid, uh, individuals, cause they'll typically be at the end of their career flying the most senior equipment. What happens is, is it, uh, takes away from that overall pie. So it's more of a macro view. Uh, and so that's why there was some resistance, but I personally believe what happened uh, to what, why Alpa changed their their course and, and allowed the 60 to go to 65 uh, several years ago uh, was simply for one reason. Uh, and a lot of it, some of it has to do with U.S. Air, Justin, but a lot of people realize after um, the 9-11 issues and the airline stabilization boards and whatnot, a lot of uh, airlines in bankruptcy were able to uh, shed their retirements, right? And so the thing that was really scary about that is that some carriers like U.S. Air and others here you were, maybe you were age 57, 58, and you thought all along you were going to have this pension waiting for you when you hit 60. And now it, it wasn't there anymore, right? So through no fault of your own, it's not your fault that that happened. So that, that I think that that put a lot of pressure on the labor union to raise it. And then the other thing that was interesting with that is at that particular time, Social Security, which supposedly is the safety net for that, wouldn't have kicked in until they hit 65. So you literally had pilots that were going to go from making a, a fairly good wage to like nothing for five years. So behind the scenes, I think there was uh, some pressure uh, put on Alpa, and rightly so, to say, hey, let's let's extend that age to 65 so we can at least get people to uh, the Social Security uh, date. So if, if for some reason they don't have a retirement waiting for them, they'll at least have something and by the way, uh, in my generation, that Social Security collection age is now 67, which uh, coincidentally is one of the things they're talking about. I don't know if it's as critical as it was back then, but um, you know, I think that's why you're seeing some of this, uh, you know, some of this play out. Uh, certainly, we know from foreign carrier. There are two two other points: foreign carriers, many foreign carriers, uh, just based on medicals, you know, medical proficiency, cognitive testing, things like that. Um, you know, I look at uh, other things like uh, Mike Haynes from United, who is not too not too far from uh, retirement when he saved all those people's lives in Sioux City. I think a Soli Solenberger, who also was not too far from retirement. I mean, it just seems that some people are in the prime of their careers and they're being told they they can't they can't continue on. This is just my personal opinion. But you know, on the other side of that, there are young people that are trying to enter the industry as well. 
And, you know, the longer people stay, you know, stay in the system, the less opportunity there may be for advancement for the others. So, I mean, I can see all the different arguments out there. But um, the, the second point I was going to make on that is um, only about three out of five people make it to age 65 now anyway, whether it's for a medical retirement or a voluntary retirement or, or whatnot, uh, not everyone makes it. I'm sure that number will drop off even more when you get to 67 or 70. Yeah. And uh, something that's really interesting to, to keep in mind too is on my side of the industry where there is no age requirement, the pressure of certain companies flying in different countries that are requiring 65-year-old pilots when the most senior pilots at certain companies are usually over 65 that are flying to those companies. So on a flip side, it's really interesting to see what's playing out on um, the 135-91-91K side when they're flying international as well. So that's another thing not many people know about and the pressure being put on them to find different pilots or um, risk being uh, up to some kind of penalty. So that's another side of the industry to keep in mind and, and really pay attention to. That is interesting. I know, I know, uh, and maybe you know more about this than I do. It's been a while since I've reviewed this area, but I believe that uh, people over age 65 on a foreign carrier flying into America, I don't believe they're allowed to be in a forward facing seat. I think that's how the rule reads, if I remember. And that's been a few years since I've read it. So in other words, it could be a flight engineer or um, I guess that'd be about it. But but to be in a forward facing seat, the uh, they couldn't be. I don't know if that's still the rule or not, but um yeah, it's it's interesting because you're right. Because every every different uh, regulatory agency out there in the world will have different rules, and it gets pretty complicated. Yeah, we'll have to pay attention, just like everything else. But Jim, thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate you, your wisdom and, and your knowledge in this area. So I, I look forward to having more conversations with you, and we'll be in touch for sure. Yeah, sounds good, Justin. Always happy to be here. Yeah, have a good day. You too. That is a wrap on today's podcast episode. If you enjoyed the podcast, go ahead and follow Pilots Pilot, Pilots Coffee, all the above, and share this with everyone. I've told you this before. Literally, if you have someone next to you, take their, I don't care if it's a stranger, take their phone, subscribe to the podcast. That's the most important thing you can do. Get more ears on it. It helps with the charts, helps with everything. So go ahead and do that. And tell your parents to do that too and your friends. But Aviation, hope you're having a great day. And as always, happy flying.